All right, so tonight, um, we've been in our discourse series. We are actually starting a brand new discourse tonight. So we've made it three-fifths of the way through the the sermons in the book of Matthew. Um, As I said, Matthew kind of broke his book up into five parts. Scholars believe he was probably trying to mirror the Pentateuch, the five books of the law. Um, Those are a very um, significant number to the Jews. And Matthew wrote, uh, we think, primarily to Jewish Christians. And so... He was probably trying to do this on purpose, so Jesus would do some things and say some things and travel and do some miracles, and then he would give a sermon. A sermon would end with a statement when he gave an end to all these sayings. They went on to the next place, and he would do it all over again. So if you ever want to go through Matthew, it's broken into five pretty clean categories, um, and we've been kind of going through the sermons that separate each section. Um, and we're starting, so we did the Sermon on the Mount, um, then we went to the Missional Discourse, just finished up the Parabolic Discourse, a whole sermon built of parables. We talked about why he taught that way. We talked about the sower um, and, the, and the dirt and the kinds of dirt that bring forth fruit and why. We talked about the wheat and the tares and how Jesus told him to, to, it wasn't our job to sort out. You know, we just grow together and let someone else sort that out. We talked about the seed and the yeast and the potential in small things and small beginnings like a word of God, how he can speak into our lives and it seems so small and just the massive potential that that carries. We talked about the pearl and the treasure and recognizing the value in the kingdom and how that requires us to do something. It requires us to move. Um, They had to go and sell things and come back and buy it. They had to capture it when it came. And we talked about how the kingdom of God is is kind of like that. uh, uh, We talked about the widow where Jesus was just passing by and and that was her one chance and she had to reach out and touch the hem of his his cloak, like it, he wasn't coming to her. He was passing by, and she had to seize it. Um, and so we talked about the pearl and the treasure were that way. These these uh, two people saw value. They recognized exactly what they saw, and they grabbed it. They sold everything they had for it, and they moved. And then last week we talked about the dragnet. Jesus said that it's it's like uh, this net that goes and just grabs all kinds of stuff and then gets sorted. And how our lives are kind of that way. And and sometimes we have to. Do some sorting, the good from the bad. The, the, we talked about the urgent and the important and how we got to learn to value the important over the urgent. We talked about quantity and quality, how in our world everything's about quantity. Everything's about more options, more choices, more selection, and how sometimes we have to narrow that down to make quality choices. Then we talked about the... Uh, um, what was my last one? Anybody remember? Oh, yeah, permissible and profitable. Yeah, we, that, we, we get so caught up in what's allowed and what's not allowed that sometimes we, we let things into our lives just because they're not forbidden that aren't necessarily good for us. And how sometimes we have to ask the question, is this good for me? Is this profitable for me? Um, and then we wrapped up last week with Jesus' kind of last small little parable about um, how a scribe of the kingdom will pull out new things and old things. Uh, and we talked about how that's exactly what Jesus did from this this old context, this Jewish context, without compromising any of the history, without compromising any of the scripture, without compromising any of the the lineage that he came from, he also brought forth this new covenant, this new thing um, that he brought to us, which is the gospel, which is um, him taking our place. So tonight we're starting a new discourse. We call this the ecclesiological discourse. If you're a theologian, the discourse on the church, if you're not. So it's just the church discourse. Um, and so we, uh, this is where Jesus gets into what it's like to live in the kingdom a little bit. And this is a, a little bit fascinating because 
this is kind of like the Sermon on the Mount in that he focuses a lot on heart issues. We talked about how in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he was like, you've heard it said, don't do these things, do these other things. I say it goes deeper than that. Why and, and how and, and the motive underneath and what's going on in your heart. This, this discourse is a little bit like that because we call it the discourse on the church. And he does a little bit of, hey, when this happens, here's how you handle it. But for the most part, this is about heart posture. This is about the heart posture we have at church. This is about where our motives are in church and the way we think. We're going to look at our heart posture toward the lost. In this discourse, we're going to talk about our heart posture toward the found in this discourse, how we deal with other Christians, other believers. And uh, very little of it is actually structural and organizational, which is interesting. I once heard a preacher say that if Jesus came back in his body, most of what we call church, we would have to teach Jesus because he would have no idea how most of this works. This is a lot of this is stuff that we've built to facilitate us doing the things that we feel called to do. But most of this isn't necessarily what Jesus would, would have called church. He, he kind of sent 12 people and sent them out to start a church. And we're still part of that stream. And we still do a lot of those same things. And it and doesn't mean any of this is bad. It just means that Jesus was always more focused on, on heart connections and what was going on at the heart level, not so much the organization. And that's, that's going to show up in this discourse. Um, and what's interesting about it is it, it really comes off the cuff this is not his other discourses it says that Jesus a crowd was gathered and he sat down to teach them and so it, it was almost like he sat down to give a sermon and to, and to speak to them this one seems impromptu this one seems like it kind of comes out of nowhere completely unplanned um, and it starts with a question they said at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and this kind of tells you a little bit about what kind of teacher Jesus was because he gives this entire sermon just off the cuff based on a question. Someone asks him a question, he sits down and preaches an entire sermon on it, which my kids say I do often. They, they often crack jokes about never asking Dad a question because that's, you know, that's two hours out of your life if you do. So, um, and so this is, uh, uh, this is how this sermon begins. It begins with him asking one question and Jesus kind of launches into this whole thing from that. And the question is, who is the greatest? And it's a question I think we all wrestle with. It's something we all uh, do a lot. We, we kind of click our tongues at the disciples sometimes. I think we do the same. I, you know, our kids do it. Like, who do you love most? And I once heard a story about this guy who had seven or eight kids, amateur. And, uh, and, he, uh, and the kids were like wrestling, you know, over who dad loved most, you know. And so they had come up with this, this like plan that, that you know, because some of them were like, I'm the oldest. Of course, he loves me most. I'm the youngest. They always love the youngest most. And, they had argued over, over it, so they decided to sort it out. They were just going to stand in a line in the driveway, and they were just going to stand, and whoever dad came up and gave a hug and kiss to first, they'd know that was the one. Like, they'd know this is... So they're ready when he gets home. He pulls in the driveway. They're all standing there in a straight line. Then they're perfect, and it had to be God that gave him this, but uh, supposedly he got out of the car, shut the door, and looked at him and goes, uh-uh, mama comes first. And all the, and all the kids were cool with that. They're like, something about knowing where dad's true love was, they were fine, and they didn't fight about it anymore, but... But it's something we all do. My kids ask me all the time, who do you love more? And I always give them the exact same answer. I don't really care for any of you that much. Like, No, I don't. actually, sometimes I do. But, um, but no, we do this all the time. We do it in sports, obviously. I just watched a documentary on uh, George Foreman, and, it, and it's amazing how much boxing is one of those sports. Where I'm the greatest of all time. You know, he fought Muhammad Ali, so they had some of his rants and raves on there. You know, I'm the greatest boxer of all time. It's pretty bad, Muhammad Ali, but... Um, but we do it, you know, we do it in social media now. You know, we, my kids have 
like their idea, some of my kids' idea of celebrity, of the, the famous people are YouTubers. Like they're these YouTubers and they're like, oh dude, he's got like 50 million followers and blah, blah, blah. And Matthew, or, uh, Noah actually, um, this week, he, he threw a comment into one of these YouTubers that has millions and millions of followers and they commented back. They commented on something of Noah's and you would have thought that he won the lottery. He was like freaking out. Oh my God, this person commented on my comment. Like it was insane. Like it's a real celebrity based on how many people follow you. Who's the greatest? It's a question we ask all the time. And Jesus answers, this is kind of funny. I like this. They ask who's the greatest. And he says, then Jesus called a little child set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say unto you, unless you're converted and become as little children, you can by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So who's the greatest? Unless you become like this child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, which is kind of like saying, Jesus, thank you. That does not answer the question at all. That's, in fact, I wanted to preach a series one time on Jesus and non sequitur. Like so many times his answers don't seem to be answering the questions that are asked. Like when Nicodemus came to him and Nicodemus was like, we know you're sent from heaven for no one, no one can do these miracles without. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus was like, that has nothing to do with what I just said. I so sometimes Jesus' response is the way he cut to the heart and he saw like the real questions somebody was asking and he just like skipped to it. Always makes these conversations kind of funny sometimes because he just comes right out. And, uh, and so he says, unless you become like a child... You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's where we usually go with this passage. We, we talk about becoming like a child, becoming childlike, having childlike faith. And, uh, and there's an element to this that's absolutely true. A couple of verses that, that Paul wrote on this topic a little bit. He said, For I, you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received a spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father, and then in Galatians, he says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So Paul said there's something about the spirit of God that gives us this kind of primal connection to God, this kind of um, childlike connection. Abba, and we, we talk about this word a lot, it was, and we usually say it's the Hebrew word for daddy, but it's actually even more rudimentary than that. They're, they have a word for daddy. This is like dada. This is like the earliest you know, recognition of the word. This is when you're too young to be calculating. This is when you're too young to, you know, when your kids come up and go, Father, you're like, ah, wait, what? Hold on. You're like, you know, when this is before you're even old enough to use words like that. This is just da-da, like that something about the Spirit of God is gets in us and, and gives us this primal attachment. We call it being born again, this kind of, this primal attachment to the Father. That, that we know we're, we're a son of God, we're a child of God. And so uh, there, there's absolutely something about being childlike. That, and, and we usually equate that with humility to an extent. And this, this passage seems to bear that out. Psalms 18.27 says, For you will save the humble people and bring down the haughty. Psalms 149.4 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. I love that verse. Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You simply cannot walk with God without a posture of humility. It's just part of the package. I think Micah 6.8 sums it up best. Micah kind of tries to sum up the entire spiritual life and he says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly 
with your God. It's the only way you can walk with God is humbly. If you go to God in any posture other than humility, um, it doesn't work because God is so far above us. So this passage is about being like a child in the presence of God. It is about approaching God with, this, with the humbleness of a, of a young child. Absolutely. Except I don't think that's really what the passage is about. I think it bears out. I think it's true. I think it's true biblically, but I don't think that's what this passage is about. I think this passage is actually a little bit playful, and we're going to talk about that. Because um, the Bible does teach humility, but there's some stuff that goes on here that's easy to miss. And I think part of it is this word converted. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Converted is a buzzword for Christians, and so we kind of bring with it a bunch of assumptions um, when we read this word, the NIV says, unless you change and become as a little child. The New Living Translation says, unless you turn from your sins and become as a little child. And the message, Eugene Peterson says, unless you start over from square one and become as a child. And they all make this word kind of grand and metaphorical and, and symbolic of a, of a really big thing coming on. Uh, and so I looked it up, and you know I don't get into the Greek too much, but I have to every once in a while... This word convert, uh, converted is strepho. The Greek word is strepho, and it just means to turn or to turn around, which doesn't really tell us much because we all talk about how repentance is to turn around, to turn toward God, except there's a different word that's used for repentance. It's metaneo. Metaneo is the word we use for repentance, and that's the one that means to have a heart change that turns you in a different direction, to change your actual worldview is metaneo, repentance. This word, strepho, is used 18 times in the New Testament, and every single time, it looks like this. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, strepho, the other to him also. Turn the other to him also. But he turned to Peter, strepho, get behind me, Satan. Jesus turned and seeing them follow him said, what do you seek? Every single use is this kind of generic use, meaning to turn, to actually turn, just to turn your body, to turn a couple of them, or then he turned the boat, like... It just means to turn. Never is it used metaphorically in the scripture. That would be metaneo. This is strepho, which made me dig a little deeper. And I found out there was two very common phrases that we actually still use today that were active in the first century. One was to turn a blind eye. It's used in the Old Testament quite a bit too, that we turn a blind eye. And the other one was to turn your back toward. And, and they were both used in the context of looking down on someone, of, of someone you didn't feel was worthy, you would turn your back to them. You would, you would turn away from or you would turn a blind eye from them. And so Jesus uses this word and, and every time that that word is used, that that phrase is said, it's strepho. You would strepho away from somebody that you look down on. You'd turn away from them. So I don't think Jesus is being metaphorical. I think he, he says when they ask this question, who's the greatest? He finds a child. And we struggle with this sometimes because we, we value kids in our culture sometimes too much, and our kids drag us around by the ears nowadays. I, like I think sometimes we have a hard time even imagining what it was like back then, but kids had a, were very, very low on the totem pole. In fact, in, in the first century, in writing anyway, they weren't even given a gender until they came of age. They were, so if someone wrote about him, they would say, such and such brought his daughter, it was dressed really pretty. Like They used the neuter... Um, uh, articles when until you came of age and then you officially became a he or she. Like they didn't even some some cultures in that time didn't even name them until they came of age, just because they, 
the kids died so young it almost wasn't worth naming a child until it was older. But so kids were uh, kids were very very low on the social totem pole. They were never counted in any censuses. They uh, they had absolutely no legal rights whatsoever. Um, a parent could abuse a child as much as they want, and, and they were that parent's property. And so there was nothing the law could do. Um, they had so there was no you know division of child and family. There was none of that stuff. Kids were basically um, give, had no protections under the law. They were as low as it came. And for the most part, uh, now kids had value in the eyes of their parents. I'm not saying everybody treated them like trash. I'm just saying as a, on a cultural sense, they weren't really considered citizens yet. They were the lowest on the totem pole. And so Jesus grabs um, what would have been the lowest on the totem pole in the time and brings them into the center. And says, unless you turn toward this child. So unless you, you stop turning your back on this, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And he does it this way. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones to be, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him that if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom offenses come. Now, this seems like Jesus just all of a sudden gets super heavy on him here. Like, you know, they ask a pretty simple question, who's the greatest? And he was like, well, kids are the greatest. And by the way, dang it, anybody, like it seems like he just puts the hammer down all of a sudden. And I don't think that's what's actually happening. I think this is actually super lighthearted. I'm going to tell you why in a second. Um, first century justice system, mostly Roman justice system, was interesting. There was very well defined and, and, uh, and articulated classes you had the, um, well, let's just, I think I have them. Yeah, you have the senatorial and equestrian classes. That was the upper class. And then below them, you had a Roman citizen. Um, and then below the Roman citizen, you had what was called a peregrine, which was their word for a foreigner or a, uh, an alien in the land. So a non-Roman citizen who's, who's in the empire. And then below them, you had a slave. And kids were somewhere around slaves, although it was a little hard to define because a, senator, a senator's, kid would obviously have had more rights than a peregrine's kid. But for the most part, in terms of legal rights, like what you could do in court, what you could do legally, kids were down with slaves. They had almost no, uh, no rights. But what was more interesting was the way that the laws and the justice system worked depended on what class you were in. So there was a different set of punishments if for the senators and equestrian order than there was for, say, a peregrine or a citizen. So... Uh, so what class you were in depended on what was crime, what was considered a crime, and also what the punishment would be. And the, the most interesting part was it was impossible for someone higher on the order to offend someone lower on the order. So something that you weren't allowed to do or say to somebody in your own class, you could totally do or say to someone in a class below you. So you could, you know, you could, you could smack someone below you on the face, but if you smack someone equal to you on the face, it was considered a, a, a criminal offense and a battery, and you would be charged for it. But you could beat anybody under you, and that wasn't a crime. And so, there, in fact, they had a, the most common one, and this is the one I think Jesus actually plays on here. I don't think I have... Yeah, I don't know if I put it in there, but uh, this word, cause to sin, anyone who causes them to sin, the, word, the Greek word there is to cause to trip to cause to stumble. Some of the translations use the word stumble. And they actually had a Roman law whereby if someone higher on the totem pole 
So left their stuff laying out and, and a citizen trips over it. So if a senator leaves something, the citizen trips over it. The senator gets mad that he tripped over his stuff. He's like, how dare you touch my stuff and, and gets mad. But if a citizen leaves something out and a citizen trips over it, he can have the citizen thrown in jail for cluttering up the road. So offenses only went in one direction. If you're, if you're lower on the totem pole, you can offend somebody higher than you. You can have a little mistake. And they had these absurd punishments. I, I kind of read through a big list of them. The, the, one of the most common for a capital offense was they would sew you into a bag and throw you in the river. And, they would, so they would, and then if it was real bad, the, and this was, I think, only if you did something to offend your father, um, if you, definitely if you killed him, if you injured him in any way, they would sew you mostly into the bag and then they would dump in a bucket of snakes, finish sewing it, and then throw you and the snakes in the river. Like, I don't even know where they came up with some of this stuff. And there was also um, penalties for if you were caught stealing and cutting off hands and gouging out eyes happened all the time, which is in the passage. So if you, um, if you got caught touching somebody who's up the ladder from you, they could cut off your hand and, and things like that. But... Um, and there were things where they would tie a small millstone around your neck and make you drag it around through the marketplace. You had to drag, they would chain it to your neck, and you had to drag a millstone with you um, for a certain period of time as a crime. I couldn't find anywhere where millstones were tied around anybody's neck and thrown into the river because millstones were expensive, and I can't imagine them. A bag is way cheaper, so I guess that's why they went with the bag. But I think Jesus is playing on, I think he's kind of jokingly playing on what they would have known as this ridiculous legal system that Rome, who was kind of overseeing Jerusalem, had. I think he was kind of playing on, on this, this legal system they were, that they were all sort of a part of, only he flips it. Uh, I've got to make sure I know where I'm at. Um, he says that, woe to anyone who causes this child to stumble. So what he does is he takes the bottom of the cast order and he puts it on top. And he jokingly says something they would have teased about, like, oh, man, don't, don't, don't trip a senator. You know, don't, you know, whatever you do, don't offend, a, don't offend an equestrian. You know, you could get in a, a ton of trouble. And so Jesus kind of jokingly flips the cast. He says, whoa, to anybody who trips a kid, like anybody who causes a child to stumble, you know, will be in big trouble. And he, and he kind of jokingly, and what he's actually doing is he's flipping the kingdom. He's showing us that, that what we think of as the bottom in kingdom living is actually the top. And what we think of as the top is actually the bottom. And I think this bears out in almost everything he did. In fact, I think this is, this is the, the heart of the gospel. Jesus came from heaven. Like we're talking as high as you can get. Like he was, he was in heaven and, and came down. You couldn't get any more, you know, elevated than that. I, I always think of my kids, you know, they, they'll get to fight. We have a, like a no fighting over toys rule in our house. It's just like a standard thing. So you'll hear two kids fighting over a toy. I had it first. Yeah, but it was given to me for my birthday, you know. And so they're fighting, you know, first ownership right versus possessions nine-tenths of the law, you know, and they're, they're dickering over who, who really has the right to have it right now and blah, blah, blah. And every once in a while, Esther will hear this and she'll just walk in. That's it. It's mine. And she'll just snatch it. We don't fight over toys. And they both sit there like, nope, 
okay, what do you want to do now? Like, that's, like clearly true authority has spoken, right? And I think, I think this is kind of what happens in the gospel. Like, we have, we have these ideas of, of who's elevated over whom and who's higher than whom and who the upper class are and the lower classes are. And then comes Jesus. And he's like, what are you guys fighting over? Like, the difference between you guys is so minuscule, like, compared to me, like, compared to coming from heaven. And Jesus' m- movement... His trajectory was to, was to come toward. He's in heaven. He's as elevated as you could possibly get. And he comes into our mess. The eternal word, John says, became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Like we, we say this, we sing it in Christmas songs, but we don't realize like the, the culture shift that is. We don't realize how dramatic that is. So picture the part of town or maybe even the part of the world that you would just as soon never live. Like, just put yourself there. And be honest, don't be all holy and be, I'll go wherever God sends me. No, you wouldn't. Let's just say the one place you're like, I'm not living there. That's too much, God. I can't, I can't do that. A filthy environment. Morally bankrupt. And then imagine when you get there, they're going to look down on you. And they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna tell you, you're a sinner. They're going to tell you you drink too much and eat too much. And they're going to tell people that you consort with the devil. And they're going to treat you like that. Like you step down into that place and they're, they're looking down on you somehow. And that doesn't hold a candle to what Jesus did. He stepped out of heaven into our mess and, and, and we looked down on him. We looked down on him and, and they were like, he's a glutton and a wine-bibber he casts out demons by Beelzebub and, and, and he's the one slumming and we look down on him and then not only did it that he washed feet he hung out with sinners he touched lepers he, he healed a Roman centurion servant he healed the daughter of, of a synagogue leader he talked to women which shocked his disciples that he's just sitting at a well chatting with a woman which wasn't done he crossed all the barriers there was nothing that, that he didn't no walls he didn't kick down. So yes, this, this passage gives us imp- insight on how we approach God humbly, but it also talks to us about how we approach others. I love the way Peter puts it in First Peter 5. Where he says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. I always call this Peter's parental verse. Has anybody ever noticed that parenting is basically like professional... Um, uh, hypocrisy that you know you basically spend your whole life telling your kids not to do things that you did like that you're basically a hypocrite I always love it when Peter tells people to be humble because I'm like dude you were the least humble person around you like every time you know Jesus is like I have to go to Jerusalem where they can you know do what I came to do and Peter's like it'll never happen I'm always like who tells Jesus what to do like who jumps in and says there's no way this is going to happen I'm not going to let you do it and you know Jesus said to go get behind me Satan you're not following the plan of God but so Peter um, anyway that was for free Peter um, decides to be a parent here uh, otherwise known as a hypocrite and says humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that we may exalt you and that he may exalt you in due time casting all your care upon him for he cares for you be sober and vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion not a roaring lion but like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. 
So I love how he says, not only do we humble ourselves before God, but you understand that you're no different than everybody else. And what you're going through, everybody's going through. And I think we have, a, and a lot of us like to go, well, I know plenty of people that have it better than me. I know plenty of people. And, and I, don't, I don't know that that's true because I think every one of us tends to experience abundance and, and lack at all times and just in different areas. So you might have a, plenty of money right now and no time at all. And you look at somebody like, man, I wish I had time to hang out with my kids and blah, blah, blah. And there's another family who's got plenty of time with their kids and no money. And they're like, man, I wish I had money. Or you've got, you know, tons of peace and nothing to worry about, stress about, but you've got no ministry, no, no impact, no, no meaning in the world. Or, or you've got a ton of ministry and that comes with a bunch of stress and worry and you're, and you're worried about people. And, uh, or you've got a lot of patience, you know, and no kids. Your kids have moved away. Or you've got a lot of kids and no patience. I'm not talking about me. You've got a lot of friends, but no introspection. You don't have time for, for depth and soul work. Or you've got all this time to work on yourself and you're lonely. Like, we all have, there's not, none of us have abundance in, any er, in, in every area at any given time. God's, God's working on us somewhere. And so, we have a tendency to look at someone else's abundance in an area where we've got lack and we're like, oh, they've got it so good, blah, blah, blah. Not realizing that you're living in a life someone else is praying for. You're, all of us are living in a life that someone else is begging God to have. They're begging God for some of the abundance that you have in a given area while you're begging for the abundance that someone else has in a given area. And so we have a tendency to use these things to like separate ourselves and, and, and keep ourselves away. And I don't think that's gospel. And if you think when we talk about humility, that humility is saying, you know, oh, I'm just nothing, I'm just low. You know, that's, that's not humility. You've, you've missed the point of this passage. The point isn't to bring yourself down. It's not really to bring yourself down. If you're a person where you're like, I think I'm pretty awesome. I think I'm pretty great. That's, all, that's great. See, everybody else is just as awesome and just as great. It's not about bringing yourself down. It's just as seeing yourself as the same as everybody else. If, if you're optimistic and you're like, I kind of like who I am, I'm awesome. That's perfect. Be optimistic. Love who you are and love everybody else just as much. See everybody else as awesome and great too. You don't have to bring yourself down. I heard a, I heard a, uh, a preacher this week saying when he was young and people would compliment his preaching, he had, he had no idea how to take that. And so he would, uh, you know, they would say, man, that was a great sermon pastor and, and he is uh, so he said an older guy came to him one Sunday and said uh, pastor, pastor that was a great sermon he goes hey man it was all God the man looked at him and goes wasn't that good <laughs> so yeah that uh, we have a feeling we have a tendency to think that humility is to drag myself down somehow and that, that's not what Jesus is after here he's after eliminating the things we use to separate us to put other people down lower than us. It's not about lowering ourselves. It's about elevating others. Jesus took a kid. He didn't, he didn't bash everybody else and say, you're nothing. You're, man, you're all so messed up. You got the whole thing wrong. You, why are you even asking that question? He doesn't put them down. He takes the lowest in the crowd and elevates him up. And he says, this, this is the one you don't dare offend. This is the one you, that's at the top of the cast. This is the one that's, that's the highest, you know, he takes whoever's on bottom and lifts them up. It's not about feeling like dirt. It's about finding a way that you somehow don't feel above others. 
But like I said, it's tough with kids today. It's tough for us to get this because kids kind of run the world. You know, even parents, you know, we have a tendency to, to feel like almost afraid of our kids, almost afraid to, you know, to, to discipline them anymore because it doesn't feel like society's behind you like it used to be. Like, so, so we have a hard time imagining where Jesus is coming from here. And I, I, think, I think basically what it boils down to is whatever separates you from other people and makes you feel like they're different than you, especially less than you, is not gospel. It's not gospel. We do it with politics. We, we love to do it with politics. We, rather than seeing the people on the other aisle as having a different approach than us, and they, they, they see the answers are different than I, than I do, and I don't think their plans would work, but they're passionate about it, and blah, 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 and that's good. We're like, they're idiots. They're stupid. Why in the world, blah, blah, blah. And we, we have a tendency to look down on them, you know, like we're somehow better. I think we do it with sin. I think we do it all the time with sin. I, I think, uh, I was thinking through this this week. You know that story where the, the, uh, the paralyzed man, the, Jesus is teaching, the house is packed, they can't get in, the doors are closed, and so this paralyzed man, four of his best friends, you know, come and climb up on the roof, and they tear the tiles of the roof off and lower this man down to Jesus. And he's obviously physically sick, and he, and he hits the, the floor, and Jesus, you know, everybody's waiting to see what he does, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. Another one of those times where, you know, and I'm sure... Two things I'd love to know about this story. I want to know the reaction of the friends when Jesus said that. Like, awesome. Not exactly why we tore the roof off. Like, you know, uh, great, your sins are forgiven. He can't walk. And the other thing I want to know is you can tell that this was not the house of the gospel writers because they didn't freak out about the fact that somebody just tore the roof apart. I want to know the homeowner's reaction to this scene um, when this happens, that nobody ever talks about how bad did they freak out when someone tore the roof off and let this guy down. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And it says that the Pharisees in the crowd got really upset. They got really worked up because he forgave sin. And they thought like Jesus was elevating himself to say um, that, that he was God because he could forgive sin. And they were like, only God can forgive sin. They freaked out. But I was thinking this week about, about what that would have looked like to the person because there's a, cause what Jesus said is your sins are forgiven you. And there's an there's a, uh, equality that happens in that. It's almost like Jesus is saying, hey, that thing that's between us, that thing that makes us different, let's get that out of the way. Your sins are forgiven. Like now, now what do I have against you? Like now, and, and, and we don't understand how we like to say, hey, I love you and you're awesome. But that thing the Bible says you're doing is sin. Like that thing you're doing the Bible says is sin. It, like that's wrong. And we don't understand how how different that is than saying your sins are forgiven you. The Bible declares that your sins are forgiven you. Well, I'm not saying it's not sin. I'm not changing the scripture. What I'm saying is the cross is big. Your sins are forgiven you. And there's, there's a, there's a equating when we say, Hey, that thing you're doing is the Bible calls that sin. You're sinning. That, that creates a separation. We're saying, Hey, I know what's truth. And, and you don't, and we try to say, Good, I'm a sinner too. And blah, blah, blah. But there's something about saying, Hey, your sins are forgiven you. The Bible declares that, that you're right, you, that, that you're forgiven, that has, that has this equalizing effect. Now what do I have against you? Now what's different between you and I? If I, if I clear that, I, uh, I think I've told you guys the story of the Greg, the homeless guy, um, 
who I had to take out of church one Sunday, and he told me a story. And he had driven drunk, made a stupid decision, hit a family, and killed a 12-year-old girl. said he watched her head smash against his windshield, and she flew over his car and died on the pavement. And he said, I haven't, he goes, anytime I try to close my eyes sober, I see her face hitting my windshield. I haven't been sober for 30 some odd years. And I was, and something in me broke in that moment. And I was like, I can never look down on Greg again because I could have done that same stupid thing. And I guarantee if I'd have seen that same thing, I'd probably be just as big a mess as Greg is. Like something in me realized as big a mess as Greg's life was. And it was a mess. He was a mess. I, it was no different than my life. I could no longer separate myself from him. I had to see myself and Greg every time I looked at him. In my heart, something in me had turned. I had turned and I saw myself and Greg now. I couldn't, I couldn't turn my back on him. I couldn't turn a blind eye anymore because Greg was no different than me. I had a moral, I had a moral failure about 15 years ago and the, the, the biggest thing that came out of it was I never saw myself as that guy. I never saw myself as a statistic. I never saw myself as somebody who could mess up like that. And so after that, I had to rework my life and go, how am I any different than anybody else? How am I? And then no matter who I'm looking at, no matter what sin they're committing, you know, the sins that I used to think were, were just too much and they were too gross and they were too blah, 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 I had to look at them and go, how can I, how can I judge? Like, how can I? There was something that equalized in my thinking. I could no longer look down the cast and say... You know, at least I'm not, you know, those guys. The cast had flipped on me. So anything that makes us look at another sinner, another race, another gender, another political party, another class, another denomination, another struggle, anything that we look at that makes us feel separated, makes us feel better, is not gospel. That's not gospel. If you're still doing that, you're not catching this passage. That's not what Jesus is doing here. What he's doing here is saying that unless you turn and become like the bottom, unless you see yourself like what you consider the bottom, unless you can look into their eyes and see your own face, then you're not getting it. You're not, you're not even operating in the kingdom. He says, he says you can't even enter the kingdom. You can't function in, in a kingdom reality as long as you're still seeing this separation. So how do we respond to this? So far, and I think if I had seen this ahead of time, I would have named this series something about this. But so far in every one of these discourses, Jesus seems to really be honing in on the kingdom of God. We seem to be really zeroing in on this theme of, of what, it, what kingdom living means. What does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God? In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. In the missional discourses, he sent them out with one message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they spent the entire parabolic discourse going, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's like a mustard seed, it's like leaven, it's like a man who finds a pearl, it's like a man who finds a treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like. He spent every discourse focused on the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes into this one and says, unless you can flip the cast, unless you can turn over the judgment system, unless you can stop seeing all of these divisions, you're definitely not functioning in the kingdom. All of the abundance, all of, all of, the, all of the healing and strength and, and, and resources and joy and peace and 
love and contentment that comes in the kingdom, that's part of the kingdom, that we all long for and we all want. And that's what we're all looking for. This is, this is where it starts. This is what it means to walk in that kind of kingdom. In the book of Acts, when it got started, we talk about all these miracles that are happening, that Peter's shadow is healing people, that Paul goes on an island and heals every single person on the island. An island he wasn't even supposed to be on. They shipwrecked and washed up on the island. I want to preach a sermon on it sometimes. Super excited. But he, uh, total accident, not even supposed to be there. And lands on an island. They wash up on an island. And while he's there, they realize he's pretty awesome. And they take him to the chief's dad who's sick. He heals the chief's dad and he gets better. And they just brought, and it says when Paul left, there was not a sick person left on the island. Healed the entire island. All this crazy power and these crazy miracles that are flowing that we read about and we we use to build our faith all started like this. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and in breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. We spent a lot of time talking about these passages, about how they sold things and gave it to the church and, you know, how crazy that was that anybody who had land went and sold it and just, you know, donated it. And I think that's the least of what's actually happening here. Because sometimes giving's easy. It's kind of sterile. Like sometimes it's easier to write a check than it is to get involved. We all know that. Sometimes it's easier to to, to give to something than it is to actually engage it. But, but if we know anything about Jesus' ministry, we know this group of people was full of prostitutes, probably ex-prostitutes, we hope ex-prostitutes, ex-tax collectors, Pharisees, fishermen, old women, young men, ordinary people, zealots. We know there were some zealots in there, which was this crazy political group that like to post on Facebook all the time. We know they were all there. And it says they continued daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their joy with gladness and simplicity of heart. This huge variety of people doing life together, eating together, spending time together, loving on each other. No one turning their backs. No one looking down their noses or turning up their noses. This passage is about kingdom. This passage is about kingdom living. And Jesus says it begins. He says you you can't even enter. And I I don't think this is talking about salvation. I think this is talking about kingdom living. He's like you're not even in the door if you're still still separating, if if you're still seeing yourself as above other people. And I think the I think the the resources and the and the move of God that is on the other side of that turning is huge. I think the move of God on the other side of 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 when Jesus said, unless you turn, unless you turn and face the other, the one that's on bottom. And we know this bears out in the rest of his teaching. He, he said that in the last days. You know, and we're actually going to get into this in our next discourse. He said they're going to we're going to separate the sheep from the goats, and 
And, and the good ones were going to say, enter into your father's kingdom because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. They're like, when did we do this? He said, when you did it to the least of these, when you did it to the ones on bottom, you were doing it to me. We know this is Jesus' kingdom. We know this is how we live. We have to flip the cast. We, we can't see all these walls. And I, and I truly believe the resources of heaven are on the other side of that turn. I think that's kingdom living. So something, somehow we have to turn our who is the greatest into one accord. That's, that's what it means to live in the kingdom. Is to do life together in one accord, breaking bread from house to house and eating our food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So as we go to the table, I'm going to ask, um, just as we sing this last song, that, that, you would, that we would just pray, God, help me turn. Help me turn. Help me identify at least one area. At least one area tonight. Help me identify a people, a person, a group, whatever, where I'm like, eh, those guys. And, and, and maybe just as we sing this last song, in your heart, turn toward them and see yourself in them. Because that's where kingdom power begins. I truly believe that.